So, um, so I just want to ask some questions about the Griffin campus. I'm now working on the past 30 years, which of course two-thirds of which you know pretty intimately around here. That, that which I can recollect. That which you can recollect. And so, observed. <laughs> so Dr. Carley, I'm going to jump, I, I have a bunch Ooh. of niceties here, but I'm going to jump into the, into the middle of the thing. Dr. Carley um, says that when Curtis Jackson came, the funding structure for the campus changed so that the funding came through Athens and that there had to be more accountability for where the funding went so that professors were rated on their productivity on a numerical scale actually and but that perhaps it was a good thing because the easygoing culture of the station changed into this this culture where people were actually expected to publish and to prove that they were actually working um, you would have stepped in right in the middle of that is his model accurate and was the funding was all coming through Athens when you came here right so um, you said a lot of things okay, in, yes. in the lead up to what you're trying to get at. So by the time I okay. talk about those other things, okay. you'll remind me what the point the of the question, point, the question was. was. Dale Carley predates me, and Curtis certainly does. I mm -hmm. came after Chuck Laughlin, who came briefly. after Curtis. Right. Chuck was there briefly, a little over a year. And when I came, indeed, the uh, model was that Curtis had responsibility for the faculty budget lines. That's the case. Uh, the issue about accountability and whether or not that's what Curtis had to do to comply with the university and this new uh, budgeting structure. I don't, I don't know you if don't it was know. new or old. I never got involved in that, but I don't know Curtis hardly at all. I've only met him a couple times. Uh, and I think I've given you before an example where Betty Roberts, who's now Betty Rowe, uh, worked in ag, ag economics back then. And she told me, because when I came, she was my administrative secretary, she came to like him and know him very well and said that he was a very, very fine person with a very difficult job to do. And uh, I think I heard the same thing from Burma Corley who had worked with Curtis for a very long time. She too came to like Curtis and respected what he did. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if not for Curtis Jackson, we would not have the USAID peanut crisp here. Mm -hmm. And that program is over 20 years old. And back when, and I don't know the details of this, but I attribute the university's uh, engagement still in the peanut crisp program the result of Curtis's leadership. And at that time, it took strong leadership on his part to do this. I cannot imagine, and what I've heard is the peanut industry was not interested in having University of Georgia faculty working to help people in developing countries learn how to grow peanuts, even though uh, it was the furthest thing from anybody's imagination that they would ever compete and what they were trying to train them and help them to do was to grow a staple crop so they wouldn't starve to death. Simply, right. That he brought a program to this campus that I think set the course for the campus for the decades to come, particularly as it relates to diversifying the campus. Mm -hmm. We have people in academic leadership roles because of Curtis that have ethnic backgrounds from almost every corner of the world. 
that USAID peanut crisp program helped to do that. Helped to do that. Yeah. And what other form, what other things might have helped to do to diversify the the staff here? Because it is very well. I think very, that's the number one thing. Number one thing. Uh, Curtis was able to bring people from around the world to work here to attract leaders from different parts of the world. We had department heads. Tommy Nakayama was here when I came. Brahm uh, Firma, and their names reflect mm -hmm. their ethnicity. So we had people in leadership roles with background, international backgrounds that prior to Curtis, uh, I don't believe would have happened. So you have to give him an enormous amount of credit. And people now talk about globalization, internationalization. We're talking 30, 40 years ago, this man did that. Uh, Dr. Carly and I both agreed that in the trajectory of the station into the future, he was at the originary point of the internationalization of the station. So I don't. I don't it was a major turning. Was, it was yeah, a major nobody. turning point, and I. And it's not to say that the faculty and others here didn't help to make that happen, but he gave. Um, he walked the walk. Yeah. It just seems like there. He took the step. It, uh, there's. He's always listed as being a defining point in the history of the campus somehow. Um, in that I, way. I, when I, I'm talking to retirees, yes. Yeah. That's the, I think in that way he really was. Um, I believe I'm correct on this also. Again, it's hearsay. I didn't go back in the records and look. But I have heard that Curtis played a signal role in the Man in the Biosphere program. And think about that. Um, Back when he was the director here, the type of programs that we were engaged in on the Griffin campus and to have somebody in a leadership role providing the insight and vision and then the, the leadership for a national program that dealt with how to live on this biosphere in a sustainable manner. To me it's remarkable. It was another major leap in thinking about the kinds of science that folks ought to be about, and not just in Griffin, but for the whole country. And what departments here were involved in the man in the biosphere? I'm not sure any of us were. The fact was that he was pushing this at a national level okay. is what was significant. Okay. Um, if you ask me what we do talk to him. Yes. Yeah, if you ask me what we do today uh, and did then the kinds of work we do in terms of soil conservation, water erosion, um, carbon sequestration, those are all related to man in the biosphere. Uh, but specifically, you know, people think about, well, I'm going to put somebody in one of these chambers and have them live on their own oxygen and CO2. But that's not what he had in mind. It was a much broader kind of thinking about the world we live in. So I think this guy was ahead of his time. Uh, in terms of thinking, and not only that, he articulated that to different communities. So he has to be credited for those things. So A, he was a, uh, I don't know if he, what's the, uh, the catalyst. He was a catalyst for change for the campus, and I think Dale is right from that perspective. He's right that people, uh, in some sense, were uncomfortable with being around him, or felt threatened, and I guess he had that persona, and maybe that would, that came with the territory in those days. The director was Hefe, you know, and Hefe, people shake and shudder from the chief. 
That's right. And so I think that was maybe some of it as well. It was part of the culture of being a director of an experiment station. And uh, he lived that culture, but he brought some remarkable things to it. And on the flip side, people who got to know him and could see through what was going on valued him as a man and a leader. So that's my assessment. Good, good. And, um, and, and, and let, let me okay. tell more about Curtis in case yes. you don't get good. a chance or haven't talked to him. I will. I'm so Curtis good. leaves here, and where does he go? He goes to India yeah. to help other people. Yeah. Um, third world country, developing third world country, and he goes to Hyderabad and he leads a program there. And he convinces them, to, it works with them, and they, um, they being ICRASAD, established an outpost laboratory with his pushing in Niger, in the poorest of the poorest countries. That center is still there in the Sahil, Curtis Jackson. He leaves Africa and he goes, I don't know where he went, USAID, in education. So the man committed his entire life to helping other people, whether it was people in Georgia, whether it was people in developing countries, and trying to help people improve the quality of their life. Right. Good guy. Deserves a lot trust. of credit. Yeah. So, so when you came here, the funding was, you were the director of this station Correct. and three branch stations? No. No? No, I, okay. I came here okay. as the... this work? You were... I, I think I was the resident director was the title. God only okay. remembers all that stuff. Resident director, and I had responsibility for the budget okay. here and the academic programs here. Budget? The research, budget, and academic programs. Okay. And, and that included the, the budget for Calhoun and Edenton? No. Not at all? I think okay. that was handled by Chuck Laughlin in Athens. In Athens? Okay. So that was in Athens. And then, in terms of um, um, your role here, have you remained resident director, or at what time has your, the, the definition of your role here changed, because you became... It changed sometime during Buchanan's watch as dean. Okay, okay. And, oh God, why don't I remember? Resident director, assistant dean. When did I become assistant dean? Probably during Buchanan. Okay, uh, you became assistant dean, and at that time, what happened to your duties? My duties. The department, he the department heads became responsible for statewide academic programs and the faculty budget lines. Uh -huh. The department heads, not department you. Heads. The department heads, largely in Athens. Correct. Because I'm the departments are joined here and in Athens, right? Correct. I was supposed to have budgetary oversight whatever that means, right. and uh, report through the associate deans for research, teaching, extension, and to the dean. Okay. And pretty much that's the kind of structure that's still in place. Okay, budgetary oversight means you're paying attention to where things are, but you don't have the authority to actually allocate funds, or? The, uh, I'm supposed to sit at the table when major decisions are made that affect both program and budget for the campus. The table being the executive executive administration of the college. Okay, and the department heads, um, um, Dr. Carley said that the departments joined and that department heads are like, they, they have to, people from here have to go to Athens to actually meet with their departments because. Oh no, well, what happened in the interim, okay. somewhere along the way, mm -hmm. and I, it happened before I think my position got, Change from resident 
director to assistant dean was that there was a department head for each discipline on Athens, Tifton, and Griffin campuses, plus I think the one in Athens generally was the oh god department head. What do you call the other one? Chair, maybe something like that. Okay, and, and then there might be a chair in Athens, but they, so you have department heads at each campus. Campus for each chair discipline, right? Yeah. Right. So that changed. Then there was only one department head. That okay. department head was going to be in Athens. Is in Athens, and instead uh, now they're no longer department heads. They're coordinators in most of the departments, but not all. So crop and soil sciences now will have a research, extension, and instruction coordinator, REI. Uh -huh. Okay, it has one department head, that department head is in Athens. Okay, but the REI is here? Because I have the little pieces of the paper that have people listed as REIs. And what's that, the research? Research, extension, and instruction coordinator, there's one at each campus for a department. One department head, each campus that has the discipline will have an REI okay. coordinator with the exception on this campus, horticulture does not. Okay. And funding comes still through Athens, through the department heads? For the, roughly, for the academic programs, for the academic which programs. means the faculty budget line and the departmental operating funds. Mm -hmm. Correct. And what about for research? Is that oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I, I missed the point. So for research, extension, and instruction, it comes from Athens through the department head. Okay. For those areas. Okay. So everything. So, it's, and do you remember what year? I, I can find what year that change happened. For no us. Way. For, I mean, what I'm thinking of is for the campus when the funding actually went back to Athens away from the director here. Because at some point, the director here was a very powerful man, apparently. Well, and there, were, there were two things. At one point, all the money came here. Mm -hmm. When this place was established, this was where it was done. Mm -hmm. So the money came here. At a point in time, the money for the director of the experiment station, the experiment station director moved to Athens, and so did the money. And then the money started to get divvied up between Athens and here, and Athens here in Tifton. Mm -hmm. so. And has the administration of the branch stations been consistent since you came here in 87? No, no that's, okay. when I came, Laughlin, I believe, had yeah, oversight had for all of them. Uh -huh. And those research and education centers, which we call mm -hmm. them now, mm -hmm. uh, at some point during the last 10 years got divided up, and I ended up with three of them. And okay. the person who has a like okay. position in South Georgia has the rest of them. Okay, so in other words, you are the overseer of those, you are the director of those branch stations. They don't, and their funding does not come from a department head in Athens or anything. No, that's correct, because they're not academic programs. So, so they don't report to a department head. Uh -huh. It's not considered statewide programming. Okay, good. That that's, has been a matter of confusion to me right. from day one. And, and I've gotten multiple stories from the actual directors of the... Oh, of, how do they get their of, money? Of, of how they get their money. Um, I'd have to go back and listen and look at my interview notes, but I have them. Um, well, they, yeah, I, I oversee their budget, but here's the truth of it. Uh, for Calhoun and Eatonton, they generate because all of their operating, yeah. except the salaries there. Uh, Blairsville is a bit different, mm -hmm. but those state budgets still come from the college through here and then go to them. It actually goes directly to them. I just prove it or diddle with it, but mm -hmm. there's not much diddling. Um, 
So um, I'm going to ask a few more questions. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll have to stop at some point. So when you came here, what did you think about the actual physical shape of the campus? The um, building. It was a major goal for me to completely overhaul this place. Because you came here and you thought... I came here and I parked when I came for an interview. I parked in front of the Stuckey building. I remember almost exactly which part, spot I parked in. It was right across the road from the building we're sitting in. This building still was occupied. I didn't know it from looking at it. And it had um, not glass, not all the windows were glass. Many of the panes had been replaced with plastic. And the air conditioners, I don't think they were functioning, they were window air conditioning units. And they were rusted out. And some, you could tell the air conditioners had been replaced by a piece of plastic. And uh, so the building I parked immediately across from looked to me like it needed to be demolished or completely renovated and as I drove around the campus it looked to me that there was much that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And have you done so it? Have yes. I done it? Yes, it's um, been here. I mean, I mean obviously the campus is... Individuals is, don't do that kind yeah. of thing. But we have, we have worked diligently with the university and others to make improvements and I think we have made some improvements, but nowhere, nowhere near what I would have thought about 20 years ago. I would have demolished many of the buildings on the campus had I had the resources and replaced them with contemporary laboratories, storage facilities, amenities for the faculty and staff. Uh, just never that successful. Didn't have the authority, uh, budget, or capability to system through the system to make that happen. Because you would have liked the Reading. Did you build the food science? Were you the director when the food science was built? I was involved in that. I mean, There's, you were at least the director. Yeah, there's a nice, interesting story about that. But food science needed space. Mm -hmm. And so there, we, we were able to get funding to make an addition to the food science building. Right. And the funding came through the university? That funding came from many different ways. Um, and that's a story in and of itself, how we got there. But it had to do with this building, the Flint building, mm -hmm. and how we ended up with uh, funding for the food science addition, the, the Melton building addition. Had to do with this building? Had to do with this building. So uh, it took a long time to make changes here because the budgets are always, always have been tight. And the budgets that come to us as directors or assistant deans, uh, you wish to maximize the research and now research extension and teaching programs and the budget for maintenance operations and utilities or major repair and renovations when I came were almost non-existent. There was no such thing as major repair and renovation money. There was money for exigencies. If you didn't have enough money and it was a catastrophe, you could get money to fix the catastrophe. But there was no money for preventive maintenance, and there was no money uh, for enhancement to speak of. Mm -hmm. So, uh, therefore, oh, new guy on the block, I'm going to change everything. And over time, a reality sets in that there's no bank account with lots of money in there that you can, or you can go to the bank and get a home improvement loan. No such thing. We have managed to renovate several of the buildings, though. So. Uh, yeah, and a lot of that um, has to do with uh, help that came from other quarters.
to enable us to do that. Where did the money for this renovation come from? Well, actually, uh, this money came from major repair and renovation. And so the story on this goes like this. Uh, I don't know how soon after I got here, the Flint building uh, was in terrible repair, as I said before. There were faculty, junior faculty, new faculty, Joyce Lattimore, Lindstrom. Uh, their offices were downstairs. I think there was a herpetologist on the second floor, if that's correct. Uh, a weather-beaten older lady who had taught at Georgia State University, retired many years, and uh, she had her notes and things spread out all over the second floor. There were graduate students on the third floor. And golly knows when it rained, uh, the water ran down the chases, mm -hmm. shorted out the uh, power system. Mm -hmm. Research had to be redone. Anyway, uh, it was not a safe place to be. So I um, had to close, close the Flint building. And uh, so as we closed it, clearly then we just closed out 30,000 square feet on the campus. And uh, the agenda was that now that the building's closed, I need space. Mm -hmm. So uh, I made it clear that we needed the space and there was a need on the campus to expand the Melton Building to accommodate the growing food safety program. The Center for Food Safety was emerging. And uh, we got support to get major repair and renovation money no, that money, well, we also got, mm -hmm. we got that building done, and I can't recall now where the sources are. We'll have to go check in the business office. Don't remember, but we can find out. Mm -hmm. And so, so this was... So we got that done, and then we turned back here and said, now that we've got the 30,000 square feet back, we've got this eyesore sitting on the campus, and it's appropriate, um, inappropriate, we ought to demolish the thing. A lot of people didn't want to see a historic building demolished, nor did I, and frankly what I had hoped for was that we would get money to renovate the building because we could use the space. And that's indeed what happened. We had help to get major repair and renovation funds okay. through the university system. Through the university system. And, and does that get, I mean, is there, a, can you get special appropriations from the state assembly to do projects like that, or, or does everything come out of just a pool of what the University of Georgia has? The legislature can provide money for uh, renovation projects, it and, can. And have they for any of them here? I'm not sure about that, the uh, Center for Food Safety, where those bucks came from now. Okay. Because there were several sources that played a role in that. Um, no. And is that if Not you were, yet. if you were to list departments that were bigger now than when you came here, what one, which ones would they be? Bigger now. Bigger now than when you came here. And the measurement of bigger is would be more faculty and more research dollars. I don't think any of them are. Not even bigger. food safety and food science. Well. Bigger in number of faculty, faculty by definition is difficult anyway. 12-month right. tenure-track faculty mm -hmm. or extramurally funded faculty, mm -hmm. uh, 
research scientists and postdocs, their faculty as well. So if you, the fact that extramural funding has increased and we have all kinds of other faculty, uh, clearly food science would be much bigger because they have more people on extramural funds. But if you're only looking at state-supported 12-month faculty lines, uh, I'm not sure there's a single department that's any bigger than it was when I first got here. Uh, we're coming back after many years of downsizing, right. but no, uh, ag and applied e economics is a skeleton of itself. Uh, three. There's three faculty three there. Yeah, three, ten, three, yeah. Yeah, three, ten. three state faculty. Now, how many other postdocs and different kinds of faculty? I don't know. Uh, bio and ag engineering is one full-time state-funded faculty member. There are many faculty members there on extramural funds. Mm -hmm. In fact, they may have more faculty. And the state-funded one is, huh? and the state-funded ag engineer is Dr. Gert Hogeboom. Okay, that's right. Okay. But there's Rosemary Seymour. There's um, Joel, whatever. And when you say extramurally funded, right? What is extramurally funded exactly? It means there's a grant. A grant from somewhere or anywhere. Government anywhere. Anywhere. So once okay. the money comes as a grant, the faculty have the money comes to the state. The state then pays the employee, and that okay. employee is an employee of the state. Okay. If they're faculty, they're non-tenure-track faculty, but they're faculty. So if you count all those faculty, we may have more faculty in bio and ag engineering than we did when I first got here. But if you're only looking at the state-supported faculty, there's one faculty member left, so they're much smaller. And I would think that you could go around, maybe horticulture now, we've added extension folks, is possibly as well, that's not true. Not you, true. Yeah, uh, so you have to look at extramurally funded. Folks. And has there been a decrease in research at a time um, when there's a decrease in faculty? Um, um, research decreases, but it's been targeted where? I mean, if, if you were to trace a scope, I mean, I feel bad because you have so many interesting stories to tell and I've tied right, you right, down right. in stupid little details no, no, I no. want to know. But right. um, in terms of a larger scope of, of what has happened, clearly faculty has been decreasing and the, and the focus... Oh, state, no, state appropriated, state appropriated faculty. Tenure track state appropriated faculty has decreased, but given that the extramural funding has increased markedly... Mm -hmm. It might actually not be. That's correct. I'm not sure the amount of research or the impactfulness of the research has declined at all. See, almost everybody that I've interviewed has said, well, it's just way smaller now. There's just so few people here now. Uh, um, the number of people here, and you can check in the business office, that's the best way to get the real number. and changed at all. They're just funded differently. Funded differently. There may be fewer. There may be, but it's not, not as markets, dramatic as not people markets. think it is. Okay. There was a period of time where we went through some really big budget Rough cuts. Funding, right. And so during those cycles, you watch your colleagues that are fully state supported, those positions not getting refilled. Somebody retire, nobody would ever get hired. Right, so you look at the person next to you, they're gone, that person's gone. But it may be that a scientist in a lab has just hired two more postdocs or some other kind of uh, title for a faculty member. They're, but they're soft money or public service faculty line. So, and or the technical support people are being funded on soft funds. That's a thank you for giving me that. So, That's an important thing to right. In realize. other words, the reality is we may have taken some really hits with state employees, fully funded state employees, but a large component of that's been made up by 
funds from elsewhere. You got here just in time for the 1991 crunch, wasn't that when? A little before that. 1990? Right, right, right. Yeah, we lost all our journals in the Georgia State Library. We just have holes in them because they couldn't. Didn't have any money. Didn't have any money to, right. to do this. It was uh, during that cycle. It was a rough time, but um, faculty went to bat and went and got, and it was a change. I mean, I don't know if it was so much on the Cur Curtis's watch for the accountability, but the agenda of Land Grant Universities began to change also about that time, and there was more of an emphasis on faculty to go out and get funding. At one time, we were up state-supported institutions. Now we're um, partially supported by the state, partially by grants and contracts, and partially by gifts or sales revenue. So the uh, funding model over that period of time has changed markedly as well. Um, and in terms of the emphasis of the research that's being done, if you were to just give me in a, in a few sentences what you think the f focus of this experiment station was when you got here and what you think the focus of the experiment station is now, um, what would that be? Well, I think the focus of the experiment station was pretty much like any other exp experiment station. We had disciplines in all of the animals, all of the plant sciences areas, uh, all of the plant science, entomology, pathology, and so on, uh, food science and engineering and economics. So, and they were doing the kind of work you would expect in a land-grant college anywhere. Um, looking at better management practices, uh, cultural practices, economics related to production agriculture. Uh, food scientists were actually looking at better processing of the product, better packaging of product. Engineers were helping design equipment back then. They were moving away from that. Uh, but it was, I don't want to say provincial, it was what one would see at any other uh, experiment station because predominantly this was research here then. And did you come here straight from an agricultural research station in Texas? Yeah, okay. right. I so did. It looked roughly like you were used to. Well, in principle, I mean, we were doing different... Different research, of course. We were different, different soils, different, different climate, different, different crops. crops. Everything. But, but we were roughly. doing generally the same sort of thing. Good. Yeah. And, and, and in the time that you've been here, what has been the change in emphasis in research? Well, the change was it was obvious to me when I came here that uh, Griffin Campus was not a typical experiment station campus. It was in a major metropolitan statistical area, which meant there's lots of folks around here and lots more coming. Uh, it's basically in Atlanta. Right. So it's in a metropolitan area and we were doing work that was still very traditional in terms of commodity production, um, production practices, uh, those kinds of things. And with the demographics changing and already had begun to change drastically, uh, seemed to me that things needed to change as well and I'm, I think the faculty felt the same way. And they changed to what? Uh, to what I consider more contemporary, mm -hmm. uh, contemporary in a sense for the region. Uh, it's kind of a, even though the faculty work nationally and their impact is national and international, they still have kind of a regional calling, and uh, they're more urban. Simply put, it's more urban. Uh, 
it's value-added products, and it's not just about producing the food. Uh, it's about how to market the food, how to package the food, how to make it safer, more nutritious, uh, taste better, feel better in your mouth, mm -hmm. whole host of other things. So it, that's the dramatic change over the couple decades that I've been here. We've gone from being what most other experiment stations were like to really beginning to pick up the mantle of what was most appropriate for what was happening in this part of Georgia. And is there, how much crop research actually goes on here? Peanuts and a little bit of wheat? Is it wheat that Jerry crop. Johnson does? And well, when you, what you're referring to is field, field, field crop, right? Yeah, field work for edible plants, crops. Uh, yeah, small grains with Jerry Johnson is still here. Um, Stan Fletcher still does economics for peanuts. Um, I don't know. Paul Raymer, it's hard to define that. Paul Raymer does uh, turf breeding. I mean, that's not a uh, edible crop. It's almost an urban agriculture crop, though, turf, right? Right, it is. It's defined as urban agriculture. The campus has pretty much moved away during the last two decades from what it was and the more typical experiment station to more an urban center. And we've spoken in the past of an increasing social consciousness at this campus um, in terms of trying to to respond and participate in in uh, in and helping solve social problems around us, um, uh, um, both through food crops in Africa, yeah. um, both in, through bringing high school students in, um, 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 through the the poverty and education research of Jeff Jordan. Um, do you have anything that you could give me any examples of those types of programs? Uh, yeah, I'll give, give you a lot of examples, but let me give you... Uh, Gotta go back to Curtis, though, and maybe even before him. This campus always had a social conscience. I mean, the best example is, by God, Peanut Crisp helping people around the world save lives from starvation. That's pretty damn social. Right. Uh, and engage when they did, when he did, and the faculty did here. And they traveled to all corners of the world to help people. That's a pretty big social conscience. Uh, and it, it, that's, that's remained. These folks have been committed all these many years to doing those good works. And I think that social conscience predates me. I just, uh, just got an article, which is really nice. Uh, oh. Sky, Sky Magazine. All right. It's the reinvention of Delta. Uh -huh. All right. So you, you want to see history in the making. Here's a story about the Heifer Project. It's in Sky Magazine, okay? Who writes about but Gwen Rowland? Mm -hmm. And the woman who was asked to write the story works for the Sustainable Act Research and Education Program. Wow. And she's not writing about Sarah so much, but she's writing about Heifer. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I came here, what was the guy before Boswell? Oscar Anderson. I think Oscar may have been the first one, department head, for agronomy back then. And I may be wrong, but he was very much engaged with Heifer, maybe starting Heifer in this region. But there were others. I think Dave Cummins 
Anyway, this camp has been very much involved. The international program still is, and I guess the point that I want to make is that this heifer program that we've been involved in, when you say you're new about social con conscience, no. The people here have always had a great social conscience. Things, it's a little different now, I think. They still are very much in these projects. They gave birth to them. I think what's a little different now is a philosophy that I've held, and so do others here. And you said you talked to Jeff Jordan earlier. Jeff's doing some remarkable things. And that is, University of Georgia is an enormous land-grant institution. It's one of the best in the country, and therefore, very special institution. It has a role, its mission as a land-grant is to improve the quality of life for everybody in the state. It's really about improving quality of life. And here in Griffin, as the university grows, um, those resources can be brought to bear to not only do what is directly in the mission of the individual faculty and their departments, but to truly live that uh, ethos of enhancing quality of life. And so, yeah, we have a young scholar program that we started here to open the door for socially disadvantaged minorities uh, to come while in high school, get exposure to higher education, meet faculty, learn that there are other people that care about them, want them to succeed, and there are places for them in the world for leadership, mm -hmm. but they need an education. They can get an education. They can go to University of Georgia. They can go to Harvard, Pitt, anywhere. Mm -hmm. Great program, social conscious, um, something that needs to get done. We're doing it. Um, Jeff Jordan started a program here in poverty. Uh, this city of uh, Griffin is in perennial poverty and a majority of the counties south of us are as well. And this is a program that is geared at trying to figure out institutionally and intellectually what can we do differently to make a difference and uh, help bring people out of that perennial poverty. And we're thinking about also maybe the continuing ed center here would have a focus uh, becoming a center of excellence to deal with poverty issues through workshops and seminars and what have you. Um, what else are we trying to do? We're, we're talking the uh, new instruction program. That's, that's really the, the historic turning point now. That would almost be, if you looked at Curtis as a turning point, a watershed, historic, pivotal moment, this is it. This is the big one. Uh, but given that, as this campus grows, and it will with thousands of students in the future, lots of faculty and staff, the area around the campus is high crime rate, uh, riddled with uh, undesirable enterprises, drugs, prostitution. Mm -hmm. The industry that was Griffin, the industry that was a large part of the South, textile industry is all but moved offshore and tomorrow's industry is the University of Georgia in Griffin Spalding County and it has an opportunity through its reach whether it's outreach and continuing education, Fanning Institute for Leadership 
or a host of other programs and resources. The Fanning Institute for Leadership. Fanning, right, just at the University of Georgia. Uh, can help to revitalize, join in partnership with the city, the county, the regional development center, or the federal and state agencies to enhance the quality of life, the aesthetic, uh, the safety of the community. And so it's a social conscience, all right? It's a wanting to help other people, but at the same moment, help everybody move together. And the, in terms of the city government, have you found them to be largely receptive to your vision for the campus as a, as a oh. hub for Oh yeah, what, what I'm telling you is a vision that I think city, county, um, I don't think there's anybody that uh, knows about what we're trying to do at the university. We're working very hand in glove with the city and the county. We just did the charrette. Uh, we had the students from the College of Environmental Design come. Uh, was partners, city and the county, the regional development center, there were other leaders in the community, worked together in their visioning process for the area surrounding the campus. Uh, and the idea is if the campus grows, how does it grow in concert with all of these other entities? And kind of a, uh, a jumping off place for what we should, with a vision to the future, what we should look like um, tomorrow and then we'll have a, an idea where we want to go. I almost have everything I need down. So um, in terms of, uh, um, there was one other program you told me about, um, um, about, about uh, um, black eyed peas and peanuts, was it, in Africa? Oh yeah, there's lots of stories. And that was, was that Joyce Latimer? Who was doing that program? I have those notes at home. Black eyed peas, you're, are you talking about the hush puppy work? Yeah. Oh, no, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the uh, weaning food. It was the uh, cow peas and black eyed peas. Cow peas and black eyed peas. Yeah, uh, who did that work? Uh, several faculty. I think Dick Phillips is the one you'd want to talk right. to. And okay. that's a, um, a remarkable story and that I saw in Ghana. I went to a clinic in Ghana, in Ujura, to observe the aftermath. And. Uh, yeah, I would talk to Dick about that project. But they had worked through the Peanut Crisp, I think it got started with faculty at the University of Ghana and developed this gruel that um, starving children that were, you know, African mothers don't have all the nutrition in the world, but yet, so they have a baby and uh, when the baby comes, they have to wean the other baby off the breast milk. Mm -hmm. And so these kids were starving to death. There's just nothing to feed them. And the faculty worked together with the Ghanaian faculty and came up with take these two commodities and somehow mix them up in a healthful porridge and feed it to the kids. And before that, there was in that town and region, there was a clinic built by the Japanese that the, the cribs were just full, the floors were full with babies that were dying. When I went, there was nobody dying anymore. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. So yeah, I'm trying to spotlight as I prepare this. I'm trying to find specific um, programs. Well, to let me give you a couple. Okay, that's a big one. I think the vitamin, fortified vitamin A in the Philippines with Anna Resurrection is another one. Okay, so I need to talk to her. Fine. Yeah, I think so because that's one that's yeah. helping to stamp out a large degree of blindness in the Philippines. We don't need fortified anything. They need it, and they're getting it. Uh, I believe that the um, peanut milk 
may have some potential again because mother's milk now with of mothers with HIV AIDS gets passed on. Opportunity to uh, make milk in the village and instead of using breast milk that's contaminated, mm -hmm. use that. Uh, that's Who, Whose research would that be? On I don't know, campus? somewhere down there. You, you ask Dick Phillips, Ask he'll Dick probably give you it. So okay. when you think about, and a lot of this credit, you have to give this to Curtis. Mm -hmm. right. Curtis okay. started this stuff. Okay. So uh, because of Curtis, mm -hmm. we're saving lives. I mean, the faculty are saving their lives, but took that kind of leadership. So it was a big conscience then. Uh, I think the biggest one now, the one that's giving us the most trouble getting funded, I mean, legitimately funded to get this done, is the aflatoxin project. And the person I talked to there is Tim Williams. But we're trying to, um, in every way imaginable, get funding so that we can, uh, there's a prophylactic procedure, we believe, for a dollar a year per person, uh, we can uh, neutralize the poison in the food that people are eating around the world in developing countries mm -hmm. and literally save millions of lives. So a lot of this has to do with food projects. Um, but actually it doesn't, because actually they're crop projects in terms of... I think it's international public yeah, health. Yeah, I mean, aflatoxin, yeah. uh, um, fortified vitamin A, uh, and when you're HIV AIDS, I mean, indirectly, yeah, it deals with a commodity, but it's... And does anybody, I mean, when they're funding, say when you're sitting with your boss in Athens talking about Jeff Jordan going to work with um, uh, um, future discounting in the psychology of school students as to whether they're going to stay in school or drop out. I mean, do you have somebody in Athens that's telling you, what, what are you doing this for? Didn't well, initially, when that one came up, yeah, they were shocked. In fact, first when Jeff came to me, I said, what the heck, you've got a reputation in irrigation, water management, what the hell do you want to give that up for? Mm -hmm. And he was ready, he said, well, I've accomplished what I think I can. It's time for me to move on. So I want to do something else important to me. Mm -hmm. And, and so landed down on that. And uh, it was a stretch for what we do in um, traditional programs, but in reality, it's what we should be doing in land grant. And so, yeah, it took a little convincing. It took some convincing because, of course, the funding, even if he gets external funding through the property grant that he did get a little through bit. the university, he's a little bit, got a little he's, money. he's still getting a lot of money through some director in Athens, and they well, they still pay his salary. Mm -hmm. He gets a little money. But he's operating on very, very small amount of resource right now. Yeah. But he has a chance to go after a major Department of Education funds, uh, NSF funds, uh, charitable organizations that maybe the Kellogg Foundation, depending on what he develops, will fund. But what he's doing is the right thing to do. It's not what somebody would picture as agriculture and environmental sciences. Right. And as and the focus moves to urban agriculture here, is it just that researchers are, are finding out that that's what the people around them are interested in, or is there some vision somewhere that's being imposed upon the, the researchers? In other words, has there been a provost or somebody in Athens who has decreed, like they do for us at Georgia State, that we are going to do so-and-so? Has there been anything like that, or is it pretty much just a, an evolutionary change of this is what industry is interested in, this is what the people around us are interested in? 
In other words, if I were looking for a, 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 a source of that focus, is there one within the university hierarchy, or is it? Nobody woke up in Athens and, and said, and we're going to be doing urban agriculture, we're going to change the model here. Um, it came from here, and it came from this idea that we don't have real crop agriculture here. When new positions come up, we, to, we hired uh, one of the department heads we hired was Ed Kenamasa, who came out of Kansas. He was an environmental guy. Uh, this campus ought to be about the environment. We had this idea. Do you think your own vision played a great I part think it in played that a idea? Part in it, sure. I mean, I didn't come here to continue to do okay. what was done. It seemed to me that this place had a reason for being that was absolutely unique. I mean, it's, I think it's the only, at th that time, experiment station, it was the only experiment station, location of its size, budget, faculty, infrastructure, in a major metropolitan area. And it would seem to me, and it did at that time, that there were unique opportunities that this place ought to be about. And that to get there, we needed to make some changes. And so it started with that, and we worked with the faculty, and we moved things ahead and got the administration to buy into some of those and things. 